morning, everyone. How are you guys doing today? Man, it's summertime. It's awesome. It's hot. Just don't mow your lawn at 4 p.m. like some people did. Just saying. Not really smart. From Buffalo, I'm used to cold weather, not hot. It's my own fault. My name is Dan Spino. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at West Shore Free, and I get the honor of sharing God's word with you all this morning. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here worshiping with us, and we're going to continue in our time of worship. We've been, we've been praising God's name in song and in prayer, and we're going to open up God's word here in, in, in a brief moment. And if you could tell by my last name and, and by the fact that I'm up here moving my hands everywhere, I'm Italian. Sure. Yay. Somebody said yay. All right. That's awesome. We have one other fellow Italian person here. It's awesome. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It was awesome. I got a yay on that. Uh, so you, Italian people are known for two things, right? They're talking with their hands uh, is one of them. In fact, my wife will challenge me from time to time. She'll say, say that sentence again without moving your hands. And I literally cannot do it. <laughs> it's really funny. I'm a very emotional person. That might be why too. The second thing Italians are known for is their homemade sauce. Mm, right? Now, I cannot make homemade sauce. I am not skilled in that endeavor, but my mom makes an amazing homemade sauce. It is a treasure in our family. Whenever our family gets together, you can count on it that there's going to be a pot of sauce there. Uh, my mom learned this craft when she was a, when she was a child. Um, she spent time with her grandfather. Now, her grandfather was from Italy. He spoke pure, just Italian, no English whatsoever. And my mom spoke English, no Italian whatsoever. She thinks she can speak Italian today. She can't. She says some words from time to time. She's here, by the way. She knows I'm saying that. <laughs> I'll get in trouble later for that one. Uh, but they could not speak to each other. There was this chasm that they just, they couldn't cross, right? They, they, there was no language. They weren't talking. But my mom would visit with her grandfather often in the kitchen and just hang out with him. He became a master. She became his apprentice. It was this beautiful master-apprentice relationship, much to our family's delight, because now we have this wonderful sauce at all of our meals, and it's just something we enjoy. In fact, I remember as a child inviting a friend over for dinner, and I'm like, hey, we're going to have sauce for dinner. And he's like, you're going to have a bowl full of sauce for dinner? Like, really? That's it? Oh, poor PJ. He did not understand, right? The spaghetti was there, but who cares about the spaghetti? It's all about the sauce. My mom learned how to make this sauce from a master craftsman. She was his apprentice. She followed his moves in the kitchen. She mimicked his movements. She had to learn just by watching him closely, and it took years, it took repetitive time, just spending time with him, intentional time with him as his apprentice. And sooner or later, my mom learned how to make a wonderful pot of sauce. And it's awesome. This beautiful master-apprentice relationship paid off. And I want to tell you about a different master-apprentice relationship that this connects to. Because we're not all called to like make big pots of sauce, because if we are, I'm in trouble. Um, but we are called to be apprentices to a different master. So much like my mom learned from just watching and mimicking and studying the moves and the words, or, I mean, not the words in this case, uh, but his movements, learning what spices go into the sauce. She watched, she learned, she, she now reflects that in her sauce. We too, as apprentices of Christ, are called to reflect our master, Jesus. There's a beautiful master-apprentice relationship that Jesus invites us into. 
And this relates specifically to our time today. We're going to talk about work. Uh, we're going to look at the, at the book of Proverbs, and we're going to see that we are called to reflect Christ as we approach our work with wisdom. He's our master. We are his apprentice. We are created in his image. We are called to reflect him in our work. Yes, we're going to talk about work here Sunday morning in this church. And now I'm sure some of you, it elicits some sort of response. Some of you are probably pulling up your phone like, oh, he just said the word work. I forgot about that email I was supposed to do. Or maybe some of you are like, really, work? Like, I don't like to think about that until Sunday night or preferably Monday morning. Do we really have to talk about that right now? I mean, can't we talk about money? That's way better. You're in luck. We're going to talk about money as well. Not today, a couple weeks. I won't tell you when because I want you to come back. But today, we're going to talk about work. And as we continue to grow in our walk with Christ, as his apprentices, as we continue to understand how to live a wisdom-filled life, one that reflects our master, one that reflects God's glory in all that we do, we're going to talk about work. Before we do, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Lord, I, I thank you. I, just, I thank you for the way that you are at work continually just reflecting on these songs that we just sang, they just they fit perfectly for our time today and there has been no collaboration whatsoever. That is you, God, at work. That's you preparing our hearts. And Lord, I ask now that you would continue to do your mighty work. You've been at work as we've been just interacting with our hospitality teams or student ministry, children's ministry teams possibly before we came in here and coming in here now and singing songs and praying, saying hi to a neighbor Lord, that all is reflective of you. And I ask now that you continue to do that work, your work in our lives as we look at your word. And God, my heart is that you would be glorified. My heart is that your work, your word, would do its redemptive work in our lives. Lord, anything that is not of you, I ask that you would just cast it away. And the things that are of you, the things that you want us to hear, may you open our ears so that we may hear, open our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us today. I ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As a follower of Christ, we are called to reflect Christ as we approach our work with wisdom. So what does it mean to reflect Christ, the perfect model of wisdom, when we work? Well, let me ask you this first. When I say the word work, when I ask you about your work, just think about your work, what type of reaction do you have what type of response is maybe stirring up inside of you? What type of maybe physical or emotional or spiritual response? Or maybe some physio physiological. Maybe you're just exhausted mentally, physically, spiritually from your work. Maybe you just live for the weekends. Work can conjure up any number of responses. And how we think about our work will shape how we approach our work. And Proverbs has a lot to say about this topic. To get us started, I wanted to just start with this idea of, of a theology of work. Because the Bible has a lot to say about work. And I think it's important that we get grounded in what the Bible says about we work. Um, so the truncated version here is with simplistic biblical. It has a lot to say. This theme is teased. Proverbs 8 helps to lay. If you have your Bible, turn with a lie tech in the back. He's ready. He's great. And learn. This is a poem. This is a personification of his work. The first, before the beginning, when there were no springs abounds, I was brought the dust of the world when he established the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world when he established the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle in the face of the deep 
when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. We see in this passage that God himself works. God was at work. He worked in, in, in creation. There's all kinds of action verbs here that we see, right? He made the earth. He established the heavens. He made firm the skies above. He established the fountains of the deep. He assigned to the sea its limit. He worked. He marked out the foundations of the earth. And who or what was with God when he was doing all of this? Wisdom. So we can say as God approaches his work, He does so embracing wisdom. The Lord possessed wisdom before he started his work and it was through wisdom that God did all of his work. So we see God works and he does so while embracing wisdom. Now to keep us moving in this idea, this biblical theology of work here, I wanna take us to two more passages and we're gonna go back to the creation account now. There's two passages in here I wanna wanna, um, turn to. The first one is Genesis 1.27. Um, and I'd encourage you, if this is not a verse you have memorized, memorize this verse. This is a foundational verse for just, it's just so full of wisdom and life. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see God created man and he made him in his image. We are created to be apprentices of God. Male and female, he created them. We are created to reflect him. That's what an image bearer does. It reflects, it reflects that image. God is the image. We are reflections of that. We are apprentices reflecting our master. The second thing I want to point out is Genesis 2.15. It says, as we continue in the, in the creation account, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, to work it and to keep it. So we see that God creates man, he breathes breath into him, and then he takes him and he puts him in the garden to take a nap. (laughs) To crave insatiably and not do anything. To complain. (laughs) No, he puts man in the garden and he says, work. God, our creator, invites us into his creation narrative and we become co-creators with him. He says, go and have dominion over everything. You put man in the garden to work. We become co-creators alongside with him. So then we can say, with wisdom, God works. He made us in his image. As image bearers then, we are called to work and we are called to approach work with wisdom. This is a very high level, very simplistic understanding of a theology of work. It's a much deeper truth. The Bible has a lot to say here. But this is helpful for us today because Proverbs, as we look at Proverbs, Proverbs is a story of of the path of wisdom versus the path of folly. That's kind of like the key theme that's carried out throughout all the Proverbs. We see that you're either walking with God, yoked to him as his, as his master, following in his footsteps, surrendering as your master, sorry, following in his footsteps, surrendering to him continually, submitting to him as your one and only true Lord and King, or you're on the path of folly. And the path of the fool 
is the one that's going at his life on his own with pride, with slothfulness, with greed, making enemies where there's no enemies, not being a good friend, not being a good parent, right? All the things that we've been talking about the past few weeks, not doing those things is the path of the fool. The path that is an apprentice of Jesus chooses is paved with wisdom. Each stone, the path is paved with wisdom when we follow Jesus, and this includes our work. So then how do we reflect Christ as we approach our work with wisdom? How do we do this? Well, Proverbs has a lot to say about work. Um, I've categorized it into like three kind of key themes that we're going to focus on today. The first one, though, is the truth by way of opposite. So we're going to look at the sluggard. Um, The sluggard is a common noun, is a common person that's seen throughout Proverbs. If you did like a word search on the word sluggard, you would see all these hits in the book of Proverbs where it takes place. But the sluggard is actually the opposite of wisdom. The sluggard is the path of the fool. So we're going to look at the sluggard as a way of gleaning wisdom from doing the opposite of it. And the, the first thing we can say is that the sluggard is lazy. So the Proverbs describes the sluggard in a number of ways. The first thing we can say is that the sluggard is a lazy person. Take a look at Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. So Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. And we'll have it for you on the screen too. But Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And here in this text, we we have this image of an ant. The ant has no leader, no commander, no chief, nobody telling it what to do. It just knows it's harvest season and I go to work. And the reason being is that I know winter's coming and I need food in the winter. So it works. The time to work is now and the ant goes to work. The sluggard doesn't. During harvest season, the sluggard chooses not to work. The sluggard chooses to just to rest. Chooses not to go about the work that's before him or her. Now some of us aren't farmers, so maybe this metaphor breaks down a little bit for us. So what might this look for us today? Uh, Perhaps for us, you spend your whole day counting down the clock at, at work. Right? You get to work, and you're just like, man, when can I go home? <laughs> that might be somebody who might be a sluggard. Uh, there's a deadline due. You get a pressing deadline. And instead of focusing on that deadline and getting that work done, you just kind of, meh, blow it off. There's laundry that needs to be folded. There's homework that needs to be done. There's a homework assignment that needs to be done. Just, meh, put it off. Instead of working folding the laundry, doing homework, the sluggard finds comfort, the comfy seat, and rests over and over again. And that's key. This isn't a one-time rest. That's not, what, that's not what this is saying. This is a continual choice to neglect work and to rest. It's a continual approach that leads to death. Poverty comes upon you and want overtakes you. And this isn't just a material poverty. This isn't like a passage on the poor. That's not what this is about. This is, like a, this is a spiritual poverty will overtake you. I don't know why I didn't get that promotion. I'm not sure why we don't have any laundry. (laughs) I have no idea. My teacher must hate me. He must. I didn't get a good grade. Right? That's a sluggard's attitude. The second thing we can see is that a sluggard has an insatiable craving followed with no effort whatsoever. And this is Proverbs 21, verses 25 through 26. 
So Proverbs 21, 25 through 26. It says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hand refuses to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. All day long the sluggard is just craving with this insatiable desire and does no work whatsoever. Contrast that to a person who's the righteous person, the person who works. And it says that per, the person that works hard is satisfied and more so is actually even generous. In a bit of irony, we see that while the sluggard cannot get enough, more and more and more, the hard worker, the righteous person, cannot give enough. Perhaps you fall victim to this. You see people at work with things that you don't have. You covet their success, their position, their fill in the blank. You say things like, oh, if only I just had X, or I need more Y. It's that unending craving that will just lead you empty. It feeds upon itself. And ultimately, as we're going to see in Proverbs 13:4, we're going to get there later, this unending craving will start to rot your soul. So this isn't a one-time act, right? These are these unending day and day cravings. I want more. I want more. The third thing we see is that the sluggard makes excuses not to work. And this is Proverbs 22, verse 13. The sluggard says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Yeah, somebody laughed. That is funny. That's right. <laughs> now, we don't completely get it. Like, like, did you hear that? Like, someone's like, I'm not going to go to work. There might be a lion out there that's going to take my life. Now, we don't have lions in our culture, so maybe that's part of it. There's a cultural context. One commentator said, that'd be like somebody saying, I'm not going to go to work. I might get hit by a car. So imagine if you're a boss or just a friend or a peer, somebody, just like you call them, they call you whatever, like, hey, are you going to work? No, man, I'm not going to go to work. I might get hit by a car. Are you kidding me? That's funny. That's a really funny, like, what are the chances of that actually happening, right? This is what a slugger does. A slugger just makes excuses over and over. Instead of doing the work that the slugger should do, instead of doing what's at hand, the slugger just, nah, I'd rather not. I'd better not. That's too scary. That's too whatever. In Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34, there's this image of the wise man walking by the sluggard's house. And he's like, I walk by the sluggard's house and I see weeds ever growing. There's no fruit on the vine. There's cracks in the sidewalk. That which should be good has come to destruction and ruin. And it's not safe because the sluggard just makes excuses over and over again, continually making excuses not to do work. I'd rather sleep than to go to work. I mean, something bad could happen to me on my way to work. That's foolishness. And if that's your attitude, you will find that poverty will overtake you. Not just financial poverty. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're not going to work, there's financial consequences for sure. More importantly, spiritual poverty will overtake you. Now, if that didn't get a little bit of a chuckle out of you, these are my favorite verses in this whole passage or all of Proverbs. No, maybe not all of Proverbs. These are my favorite verses for today. Proverbs 26 Verses 14 through 15. What we see is that the sluggard embraces pure slothfulness. Just pure slothfulness. Listen to these verses. Verse 26, 14 through 15. As a door turns on its hinges, 
So does a sluggard on his bed. It gets worse. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. That's funny. I can't, like, it's just all kinds of images that, like, race through my head. We'll just, we'll take these one at a time. It, it's okay to laugh. I think that the Bible has a lot of funny, there's a lot of funny passages. Some of it's, like, in the original language. You've got to understand some of the plan where it's happening. But, like, this is just English. This is, this is just funny. This is funny stuff. So let's take a look at the first one, right? As a door turns on its hinges. Now, imagine for a moment, because a lot of doors in our house, we have a house built in 1900, squeak. So imagine for a minute that it's a squeaky hinge, right? So you have the sluggard in bed like, uh, I don't want to go to work. <laughs> like, I'm going to stay in bed. Like, you know, this creaky like, uh, over and over again. Like, that's, that's funny. And in good construction, yeah, some things can happen. But when does a door stop swinging on its hinge? Never. Unless you take it down, right? Doors will just, they'll just keep swinging. Open and close, open and close. That's the sluggard in his bed. That is not a good image. Even worse, he's so slothful, he won't feed himself. <laughs> How much of us, I mean, like, it's not that he doesn't have food. It's that he, like, he, he's just too lazy to just do that. Like, that's amazing. And you're like, really, does this happen? Listen, I was hanging out with a dear family, and this little boy, sweet little boy, came in. He's like, Mom, and some of you know this story already. I had a couple of you like, yep, that happens. This little boy comes in, Mom, I'm hungry. Can I have a sandwich? And this mom's like, buddy, absolutely. I love you. You can have a sandwich. You know where the bread is. You know where the peanut butter is? I have taught you how to smear peanut butter on the bread. You can do this. I know you can. Go ahead, man. Make a sandwich. Help yourself. What does he do? Come on. You know. He went outside and played. <laughs> right? He basically said, I would rather go hungry than make myself a sandwich. <laughs> True story. Now, while we might excuse this behavior of a little boy, right? I mean, he's a sweet little boy. He'll grow. He'll learn, right? He's got, we excuse that. It's teaching moments. Mom's a great mom. She's got it. It's all good. Um, there's, some of us are a little bit more capable than that. What might this look like in our lives? Because my guess is we don't have a hard time doing this, right? That's easy, right? I do it like 100 times a day. That's easy. Perhaps, though, it's the avoidance of doing a good thing or avoiding putting in that extra effort and instead choosing to remain idle. I could help that person, but that involves work. <laughs> I could actually turn the TV off and, and talk to my friend. Uh, I'd rather not. Or like iPhones, or like our phone, right? Like I could put my phone down and actually engage with you, but... No, that's just too much. I'd rather just do this. Or my favorite, the proverb that we actually have in our culture, right? Why do today what we could put off until tomorrow? This too is not the path of wisdom. We can laugh. These are funny things. But if this defines us, if this is the path that we're choosing, if these are just some of the examples that we fall prey to, that is not a good thing. Look at the sluggard and take warning. Finally, we see that the sluggard is a bad representative of his employer. In Proverbs 10, 26, so Proverbs 10, 26, so I have a hard time reading this verse without like gritting my teeth, honestly. Like they, they start to tingle. 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth 
and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. All right, did you get that, like that feeling? Or you ever have smoke? You ever have a campfire and smoke goes in your eyes? You're just like, oh gosh, this is awful. That's what it's like having a sluggard represent you. He's a poor representative of Christ. One commentator noted that the sluggard is exasperating to anyone who must employ him. He's like vinegar to the teeth, smoke to the eyes. And in Proverbs 18.9, it actually says that he's the brother of destruction. It's a brother to destruction. So he tends to be destructive. That's the sluggard. He's not productive, he's destructive. Not somebody you want to represent you. The sluggard does not represent Christ well at all. And this is a stark comparison. This, we should take warning. If some of these things are like, uh-oh, I do some of that. <laughs> Take warning. That's all this passage is in. Take warning. Because most people don't wake up in the morning and just say, I'm going to be a sluggard, right? Like, I think I'm just going to just choose to be lazy, slothful, have insatiable cravings, not do anything, and just stay in bed, creak, and not even eat, right? Most people don't do that. So how does one end up being a sluggard? How does he do it? It's a water drip over time. Listen to this quote from this author. He says, the wise man knows that the sluggard is, and this, this is our warning, right? An ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements. It has been an imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. That should jolt us a little bit. Being a sluggard happens over time. It's this slow water drip, right? The continual excuse, the continual whatever, making incremental bad decisions along the way. Often this point's arrived at with stones on the path made up of bad choices, bad thoughts that just go unchecked. You just let your thoughts go. Feeding emotions and false narratives that should be stopped. Instead, we feed them. Becoming blind to one's own ways and too wise in one's own eyes. And ultimately, it's the isolated life, right? The sluggard tends to be a lonely person. Now, he or she might have some friends, right? Maybe there's like four facets of their life. They have four friends, and this person knows A, this B, C, D, right? But nobody knows A, B, C, D. Nobody knows that person completely. There's this isolation that happens. Now, while I don't claim to be a sluggard doctor, what are some warning signings, maybe, that we should be looking out for in our lives today? Well, if you have an insatiable craving for the weekend, man, I am so glad it's Friday. I might caution you if that's your continual attitude. Or perhaps the dread on Sunday nights. Man, I am so sad it's Sunday night. Here we go. <laughs> Maybe you worked harder the previous 48 hours than you did the previous 40 in your vocational calling. Perhaps Friday is draining because you're just sitting there checking the boxes, waiting, waiting for the weekend to come so that life can begin. If that's your continual attitude, I might caution you. See, work is not a burden, and we were not designed for the weekend. If you think otherwise, then hear the words of the sluggard and take caution. Or maybe you've entered into a season of joblessness. And every job prospect that kind of comes your way, you're like, ah, oh, that's not the right one. I'm, I'm way too good for that. And you just do that continually over and over and over again. Rather just not work and wait for that perfect opportunity. 
I had a friend, but it was about 12 years ago, different state, different city, different time, and he, just, he was in a very specific industry job, and he, he was in a point of joblessness. Opportunities were coming, and, but these things, other opportunities were, the ones that he want weren't coming, but opportunities were coming. I'm like, Brian, dude, this is a great job. Take it. It's a short-term project. You'll be able to pay your rent, your mortgage, whatever, like, right, take care of your family. Nah, I'd rather not. And you know what happened 12 years ago? I talked to him this past week. His, his marriage has fallen apart. His family has fallen apart. He's still waiting for that perfect opportunity. Still waiting. And who's to blame? Everybody else. Take caution. That's all I'm saying. Just take caution. This could potentially be another water drip. Perhaps your life is marked by too much rest, not too much work. It's good to look forward to rest. These are the cadences that God established for us, right? God worked seven days and then he rested. But then he worked. Jesus went on a retreat. He didn't just like go on a retreat and never come back, right? They established these cadences for us. Intense engagement, intense withdrawal, work, rest, work, rest. This is by God's design. It's good for our body. Both aspects are good for our body. You need a proper cadence to this. But the sluggard tends towards too much rest. Now, rest, vacations, all good stuff. But, if, but when that's all that you live for, if that's all that you live for is weekends and holidays and vacations, I might caution you. Don't let work get in the way of your rest. We are constantly being formed. If you don't know this, you should hear this. We are constantly being formed. All of our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, the things that we watch, those that we interact, that's all constantly forming us. So how are you being formed? That's what the sluggard's life needs to say. How am I being formed? Where is this path leading? Those little water drip moments shape us over time. So then how should we approach work such that we model our master Jesus, right? The sluggard's the opposite. What should we do? Well, Proverbs teaches us that, there, that a wisdom-filled approach to work is working as God worked, and that's with integrity and diligence. So first, we're gonna talk about integrity. Now, what does this word integrity mean? A life of integrity is one marked with consistency and blameless. The actual word means, means whole, uh, blameless, complete, a person that is marked with integrity does what he says he will do. He takes on his responsibilities and does what he's supposed to without cutting corners or without taking the easy way out. My guess is I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, know somebody that you would say like, man, that person is full of integrity. That's just my guess. You, you see it. You understand it. It's both a marker of a follower of Christ and someone walking with wisdom. So then what does Proverbs have to say about integrity and work? Well, first we see that integrity at work means that you can walk with secure footing. So integrity at work, you can walk with secure footing. And this is Proverbs 10, 9. So right where we left off, chapter 10, verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. So when you walk, when you work with integrity, you can walk and work confidently. You don't have to be looking over your back wondering, like, what is that person saying? Or am I going to be fired? What's going on? You don't have to do that. Because when you, when you walk with integrity, you know that your path is secure. Your work is good. Do things happen at work? Absolutely. But your work speaks for itself. The best thing that can happen is if somebody ever says something to you in front of somebody else and like, oh, no, I know that person. That's not them. That's a life marked of integrity. 
Integrity at work, number two, means dealing fairly with everyone. And we see this in Proverbs 11.1. 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. This takes us back to like the time of the, like the king. The king would set the balance for the scale. So when you're in the marketplace, you know, like, what is a pound? What is a shilling? What is, what is a talent? Whatever, whatever the metric is, they knew there was, there was something established for them. But those without integrity would kind of tip the scale just a little bit, right? So that when you come and weigh your product, you have to do just a little bit more. They're just skimming off the top just a little bit. That's the image here. That is not a life of integrity. People with integrity do not cheat at work. They don't squeeze the customer for that extra percentage point. They ignore titles, positions. They deal with everyone and anyone, all their employees, all their interactions, all their customers, all their family, all their friends, the same. They operate with integrity, with consistency. The third thing we can say is God delights in those who work with integrity. We see this in 1120. It says, those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. How you approach your work is a reflection of what is in your heart. When your work is blameless or whole, when you work with integrity, it reflects a heart that is knitted together with God. It's knitted together with his own heart. And we see that the Lord delights. He delights in those who do that who operate with integrity. God is a just and honest God. So he delights when his children reflect that, image bearers, reflect that to others. When we are being lazy or given half effort, we are lacking integrity and we are guilty as image bearers of creating a picture of God that is not representative of who he is. Do you ever think about that? When you're being lazy with your work, when you're being slothful, you're not representing God very well to others at all. I mean, if you're that way and you tell me you're a believer, God must be that way too. We can shape culture in a transformative way if we just work with integrity. That is gospel. That is showing people the gospel at work. The fourth thing we can say is that integrity cares more about character than income. Integrity cares more about character than income. Proverbs 28, 6. 28, 6 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Better to have no money and to have integrity than to be rich and to lack integrity. That's what this verse is saying. While the world clamors, right? The world is screaming at you for more and more wealth, more and more money, more and more whatever. God whispers to you for more and more character. Why is that? Because God cares so much more about your soul, cares so much more about your character than he does about your wallet. Now, does he care about your wallet? Absolutely. Does he care about your possessions? Does he care about your family? Does he care about how you live your life? Absolutely. As God followers, all those things become transformative when we are transformed with him. We learn to live those things out. But primarily, God, God wants your soul. That's what he wants. He wants to shape your character. And that's what he's all about so that he can get glory. 
This then, this then leads us to approaching our work with diligence. Proverbs teaches us that a wisdom-filled approach to work is marked with diligence. In some ways, this section is the exact opposite of the sluggard section. In fact, in a lot of the sluggard verses, you see as as a sluggard is this, those who are diligent are this. So we don't need to go through all those again. Um, if you want to, some verses you can write down. Verse 10, uh, sorry, chapter 10, 4 through 5. Um, chapter 15, verse 19, and chapter 21, 5. These are great verses about understanding how do we approach our work with diligence. But one verse that I want to focus on is, is verse 13, 4. Chapter 13, verse 4. It connects the health of our soul with how we approach work. And anytime the Bible speaks about our soul, you should just slow down just a little bit. Just pause for a moment and take it in. Just take an extra, like, let me read that one more time, type attitude. 13.4, the soul of the sluggard, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. While the soul of the diligent, so the focus here is the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. There's a very, very important nuance in here that you may need to make sure you hear. And I intentionally repeated it and slowed down. This is not prosperity gospel time. That's not what this is about. This is about your soul. We see that working diligently impacts and transforms your soul. A person who walks diligently is richly supplied. Not that we work hard so we get things. It doesn't say that your wallets are richly supplied. Those things might, may or may not happen. Cool possessions might increase, possibly. Doesn't matter. When we work hard, when we work with diligence, our soul is satisfied. Our hunger for God is satisfied. We are knit together with him. The sluggard just keeps craving and craving, putting in a half-hearted effort, desiring for things and just not doing any work whatsoever. His soul is just full of poverty. It's just empty. There's just nothing. But those that are diligent understand that as we come under our master, as his apprentices, he calls us to work hard just as he did and still does today. When we work diligently, we reflect Jesus. When we reflect Jesus, our soul is richly supplied. Now, while God is opposed to working to earn salvation, to earn his love, that's not what this is about, He's not opposed to effort. He's not opposed to working hard and being faithful where you are. Those that work hard are richly supplied. Their souls are yoked with God and they do not suffer want. And more so, they are richly generous as well. Diligent work is a reflection of our diligent God. Now, as I've interacted with many of you, you guys understand this, this section of the country, there's certain bubbles. This is one of them that just really understands hard work. I don't think I've interacted with somebody yet that's just like, man, they don't get it. <laughs> this is a hard working area. So for us in this area, the caution here is that we don't take work, a good thing, and hard work, which is a good thing, diligent work, a good thing, and make it an ultimate thing. So that's the caution for us. As we approach our work with diligence, don't make work an idol. Don't start to worship work. Instead, worship God through your work. That's very key. It's very subtle. It's very key. 
There's some markers of this. If you tell people how many hours you work in a week, don't you, you ever meet people like that? Like, man, I just work like 80 hours. Oh. <laughs> it's like, all right, that's great. I don't know what to say. That's not being diligent. That means work might be an idol. If at the end of the day you go home and pull out your phone only to do like that one more email, that's not working diligent. That might mean that work is an idol for you. Don't misappropriate the cause. The followers of Christ were called to work with diligence as a reflection of the one that we worship. We worship Christ in and through our work. We don't worship our work. We are called to reflect Christ as we approach our work with wisdom. So then as we embrace this life as an apprentice of Jesus, embrace wisdom in our work, we look to him as our master to guide us and lead us. He sets the example for us. In Colossians 3, Paul points out that in whatever work we do, he says, whatever you do, we are to work as if we were working for the Lord. When we work, we are working for the Lord. And as such, he sets the example for us in how we are to approach our work. There are so many, there are so many passages I wish I could just take you to and the life of Jesus for you to understand and highlight his work. Isaiah 53 shows us the work of a suffering servant. Colossians 1 shows us that all things are created by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. Ephesians 1 shows us Jesus reigning over the world today. Revelation 21, 22, the new creation that's yet to come. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Hebrews 10 urges us as brothers and sisters in Christ to stir each other on in our works. And there are plenty more. There are plenty more. Jesus worked. He was a carpenter by trade a prophet, a priest, and ultimately, our king. He worked with integrity and with diligence in all that he did. He worked so that we might have life. Jesus was at work in the creations. All things were created by him. He just said this. John 1 tells us that, that Jesus is God's word revealed to us, that his word was in the beginning, and then Jesus rested on the seventh day. Jesus worked here on this earth. He performed miracles He showed us the path of life. He modeled godly living for us so that we might embrace the path of life. He gives us life abundantly. He fulfilled the law because we never could. He actively took our sin. He actively took our sin upon him and actively imputed his righteousness onto you. That's work, friends. That's Jesus at work. He laid down his life for us. He laid down. No one took his life. He laid his life down for us. He chose death for us. He worked at the cross. He worked some more after the cross and conquered death. He worked conquering death so that those who believe in him, those who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who believe in him may partake in conquering death. He worked for our salvation because we cannot work for our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. It's a free gift of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over the earth to this day, and his kingdom will never end. But he's not done working. He's not done. He's alive and working now. Right now, Jesus is alive, working in the heavenly realm for you. And one day, he's gonna come back. And one final work effort, he's going to work as judge and force sin and death in this world to be swallowed up. 
And he's going to invite all of his people, all of his saints, all of those who, while there's breath in their lung, claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, because that's the chance we get, friends. When you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he invites all of his people into the new heaven and new earth that he hasn't even created yet. It's a new creation that he hasn't done yet. And furthermore, he will fashion us with bodies created for us by him. That's the work he's going to do. He has worked, he is working, and he will work. He is not a sluggard. He is our master and we are his apprentice. He sets the example for us. When we work with integrity and diligence, we reflect him. We reflect our heavenly father for all to see. We are his apprentices, yoked to him. Matthew 11 tells us we are yoked to him. We get to follow in his footsteps. And we are called to reflect our master in all that we do. Today we're talking about work. Next week we're going to talk about something else. You're still called to reflect your father. It's time for us to take our work more seriously and bring God glory in what we do. This is what Proverbs has to tell us about work. This is the model that Jesus gave us. And he invites all of you to him. And he says, come, come to me. It's a great invitation. If you don't know Jesus, friends, I love you and I'm praying for you. I want you to know him. Come to him. Come and know him. We're gonna have a prayer team. We're gonna, we're gonna close our time in one more song here. We'll have a prayer team down front. If today is the day where you want to take a step, maybe, maybe taking that step of like, Jesus is my Lord and Savior is too far for you, fine. Maybe it's like, tell me some more. Come on down. Talk to our prayer team. They would love to pray for you. God has a word for each and every one of us here. Come on down. Our prayer team will be here during this song. Come and pray. Perhaps you just need to repent. Now, you don't need to repent to them, but they will. You just need to repent, and you want someone to repent with. They will pray with you. And ask God for that forgiveness because he wants to forgive you. He has forgiven you. Maybe you need physical healing. Friends, come on down. Listen, when we pray, when we pray, things happen. So when God puts that, just that tug in your heart, don't delay. Don't dawdle. Just pray. Cry out to him. And if you don't know how to, come on down. Somebody will cry out on your behalf. They would love to do that. My guess is God has something to say for you this morning, perhaps about work, about how you approach your work, the way you think, the way you act, the way you feel. Maybe you're in work struggles right now and you don't know what to do. Friends, come on down and let's pray. Come on down. Let me pray for us now. Jesus, I thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And right now, it is piercing. There's things happening in in the heavenly realm there's like our names right now, friends, are being declared in heaven by name. Right now, by name, your name is being declared, being fought for in the heavenly realm. We thank you, Jesus, for that. Now, may we hear that penetrating work that you have for us, Lord. May we not worship man. May we not worship performance. May we not worship the person preaching or singing, but may we worship you, God. May we worship you. We give it all for you because we want to see you glorified. So Jesus, I ask do your work. Convict where a conviction needs to be. Point out repentance where repentance needs to be. Draw those in who are on the fringes just waiting. Let today be their day, Father. 
pull them and give them the courage even just silently to say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Minister, Lord, minister to your people, to all the people here, God. And we say amen because your name, Jesus, is powerful. And when we cry out to you, you don't delay. You work with integrity and diligence. And you're at work right now. Thank you, Jesus, for that work. Amen.